0: The question I'd like to start off with is a question, do you own yourself? I'd like to have you just think about that for a moment. And in terms of our social behavior, this is the most important question we need to ask ourselves. And yet, how many of us have ever asked it? It's the first question I ask my students on the first day of of class in my courses on property law. We then proceed to a discussion of the Dred Scott case, a pre-Civil War Supreme Court case that upheld Scott's status as the property of his master rather than as a self-owning person. We are social beings, and consequently, we must develop an understanding of who we are in relation to one another. Are we individuals with our own interests and purposes for being, who voluntarily cooperate with one another to accomplish mutually advantageous ends? Or are we nothing more than fungible and subservient components of some collective monolith? Are we ends in ourselves, or only the means to some alleged greater purpose? The answer to this question is unavoidably tied up in the practice of how property is to be owned and controlled in our world and ultimately leads to the questions that we're going to be focusing on a little bit later on, on decentralization. Property is a social concept, one for which we have no need if we were the only person on the planet. Property is not so much my relation to my automobile as it is my relationship to you regarding my automobile. Property is not a human invention, it's not an ideology, Neither is it, as the Marxists would have us believe, but a reflection of some de- developmental purposes brought about by a historical determinism. Property is a fact inseparable from our biological existence. Everything must be someplace. I've developed this as the Schaeffer Law. I don't know any place else that. Uh, it's been stated in that quite that terms, but it's so basic, maybe we don't have to state it uh, that often. Everything must be someplace. Everything must occupy space to the exclusion of everything else. Furthermore, every living thing must consume energy from its environment if it's to overcome, at least in the short run, that inconvenient regularity that nature has given us in the form of the second law of thermodynamics. This is as true for plant and other animal life as it is for us humans. Each one of us must stake out our claims to some portion of the world, take control over them, and adapt such property interests to our purposes. All of our political, economic, and social relationships are grounded in this most fundamental existential question, of how property is to be owned and controlled. I would go even further and suggest to you that if you go through any newspaper and find any particular statements or positions or acts that are done uh, that are drawing the attention of other people, these are all property-related questions. Everything, in terms of social relationships. For yourself, you know, it's a different story, but in terms of a social relationship, it involves the question of, of who gets to make these decisions. The question we have been, we have been qu- conditioned never to ask is the question, who gets to make decisions about what? That's the basic property question in our life. How do you respond to my earlier question about self-ownership? How you do so will determine whether you are your own or someone else's reason for being. <coughs> Let me caution you, asking this question of yourself is likely to be quite discomforting. If you answer, yes, I own myself, then I think you have to confront the second question. If I own myself, why do I tolerate other people regulating, controlling, doing things to my life of which I disapprove? On the other hand, if your answer is no, about the self-ownership inquiry, what possible objection would you have to anything anyone wants to do to you? It's a a troublesome problem for my students. I tell them at the start of the year, by the time you get to the end of the year, you're going to be squirming, and they usually are. Human society is presently undergoing what may be one of the most profound transformations in human history. Our social systems are moving from centralized, vertically structured institutions to decentralized, horizontally-networked associations. And at the center of this metamorphosis are changes in our ideas and our practices about the nature of ownership. Historically, we've organized ourselves around political systems, most notably the state. Political systems are defined in terms of how property is to be owned. In a pure communist system, All means of production are owned by the state. In less ambitious forms of socialism, the major tools of production, for example, factories, mines, transportation, communications facilities, and so forth, are owned by the state. In a welfare state, government takes some of the more liquid forms of property, that is, income, and redistributes it to others. Again, a form of of property transformation. In a fascist system, title to property is privately owned, but control is exercised by the state. Everything that the state touches comes down to a question of who owns you. Government regulation of the marketplace, conscription, taxation, the war on drugs, compulsory education, war, health care, the emerging regulation of diets are all grounded in the premise that the state has a superior claim of ownership over you. As we see most clearly in the nature of fascist systems, ownership is a function of control, not of title. Who decides is a question the status are uncomfortable having us ask. Thus government intrusions into the lives of individuals become rationalized not in the name of personal ownership, but as privacy, safety, health, civil rights, or group rights matters. In your field of work, state-licensed, state-mandated, state-standardized, state-subsidized medical practices are all at war with the concept of self-ownership. Your body and your health have long been regarded by the state as an interest to be subjected to its control and satisfaction of its purposes. The 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery but only nationalize the practice. If you doubt this, consider the dissenting words of U.S. Supreme Court Justice John Harlan, who, in a famous 1905 case, dealing with state legislation limiting the number of hours employees could work in bakeries, supported such legislation, declaring that long hours, quote, may endanger the health and shorten the lives of the workmen thereby diminishing their physical and mental capacity to serve the state, end of quote. Matters have only become worse since then. And while we're in the process of defining our terms, let me offer just this one caveat. When Hillary and her crowd make additional proposals for governmental intervention in health matters, please do not refer to such efforts as promoting socialized medicine. It's not. Socialism has a pejorative tone to it and we should be wary of overstating our objections, lest we be accused of hyperbole. What we have in modern government-regulated healthcare is not socialism. Under socialism, the state owns all the facilities, the hospitals, clinics, laboratories, equipment, and so forth, and the medical staff are paid government employees. Under our present system, most hospitals are privately owned, as are the clinics, medical offices, laboratories, and equipment. For the most part, private parties, not the state, must pay for medical malpractice claims and insurance. Now a system in which property is privately owned but regulated by the state is not one of socialism, but of fascism. So please, for the sake of accuracy and to avoid being charged with exaggeration, let us refer to our existing system and the myriad of proposals for extending it in more exact terms, as fascist medicine. Now, how did we manage... Oh, go ahead. I I, I, I paid my clack enough to be here to do that. Uh, (laughs) How did we manage to get ourselves into the situation of abandoning our our self-ownership interests to the state? While various factors have, con- have contributed to this, the principal explanation is found within our mind. It is to the processes and content of our thinking that we must look in order to understand the social problems that we have created for ourselves. As I said before, we are social beings for whom organizing and cooperating with one another for mutual advantage is as natural as our needs for property. But how are we to become how are we to become organized? on what basis shall we come together in society? Western civilization has long embraced the idea, at least as old as Plato's Republic, that an orderly and productive society requires adherence to a pyramidal organizational model with its top-down, vertically structured, command and control mechanisms of centralized authority. The pyramidal model is the one upon which institutions operate be they business corporations, hierarchical religions, most school systems, or the state. In a chain-of-command fashion, decision-making authority trickles down from institutional leaders to the rank-and-file members at different levels in the hierarchy. Corporate managers, classroom teachers, legislators, judges, prime ministers and presidents, and ecclesiastical physician, officials i am sorry may function in different settings, but each operates... On the same premise of establishing order through the exercise of their will over others. No clearer statement of the pyramidal prim- premise has been uttered, at least in recent decades, than by former U.S. Secretary of Defense uh, and industrial leader Robert McNamara, who said, quote, Vital decision making, particularly in policy matters, must remain at the top. This is partly, though not completely, what the top is for. End of quote. Implicit in the pyramidal model is the assumption that the institutions uh, involved, that the institution involved is its own reason for being. What might have become as a flexible, organizational tool allowing individuals to cooperate for the production of life-sustaining values comes to be regarded as an end in itself. The successes that were facilitated through the use of organizational machinery tend to produce in our minds a dependency upon the system created rather than upon the creative and resilient processes that led us to create this tool in the first place. With the support of those who have become the leaders, we come to endow the organization with a need for permanency. In this way, the organization gets turned into an institution, its own raison d'etre. So constituted, the institution resists the processes of adaptation necessary to a creative system, and develops preferences for stability, security, and a resistance to change. Instead of adapting itself to the fluctuations of an inconstant environment, it seeks to force its environment to adapt to its needs for certainty and permanence. Institutions desire uniform and standardized practices, and resist the competitive actions of others that foster disruption and insecurity. Economic history informs us that as with any voluntary cartel, efforts to achieve such collective regularity are undermined by the varied self-interest pursuits of individuals. In their efforts to <coughs> excuse me <coughs> in their efforts to restrain the diverse behavior and creative alternatives inherent in a condition of liberty <coughs> and to stabilize and preserve their established positions, institutions have had to call upon the state to establish and enforce standards of both conduct and goods and services to which others must conform. (coughs) Because the state is an institution that enjoys a monopoly (coughs) on the use of violence within a given geographical territory, such efforts on behalf of stabilized uniformity are brought about and reinforced through standardized thinking, in which men and women learn to value security above individual liberty. American politics is firmly grounded in the worship of security, social security, job security, homeland security, airport security, and the security of national borders, being just a few current examples. Lest the public discover what its government has been up to, Efforts to reveal such knowledge are routinely repressed in the name of national security. There is nothing about our nature of human beings that requires us to organize ourselves in such centrally directed ways. Many societies have discovered the advantages of a decentralized model. But as the late Richard Weaver observed, there are consequences that follow from the ideas we embrace. Our thinking produces both intended, and unintended outcomes. Centrally-directed systems can function only through the transfer of decision-making authority over property from individuals to a collective organization. It is at this point that confrontation arises between individuals and institutions, with decision-making over property as the focal point. Once this occurs, social conflict is created. As institutional interests in permanency and maintaining the status quo are incompatible with differentiated and contrasting individual interests. By its coercive nature then, government is in a state of conflict with people. That should be fairly obvious. It compels individuals with threats of fines, imprisonment or other punishments, including death, to obey its dictates rather than pursuing their own private ends. The state produces nothing. It transfers wealth from owners to those who at best can be regarded as recipients of stolen property. Coercive power is at war against life, for coercion seeks to force life to become what what it does not choose to be. Life expresses itself as autonomous and spontaneous activity. The opposites of the rigidity and uniformity insisted upon by the state. As such, life is inextricably dependent upon the liberty of individuals to do with their lives and other property interests what they choose. But to the state, liberty is a form of entropy, that is, energy that is otherwise unavailable to produce the ends sought by government. From the perspective of the state, then, liberty is a loophole to be closed off through legislation, administrative rules, and judicial decisions with little or no questioning at least on our part most of us have become conditioned to accept this arrangement as the inevitable nature of what it means to be human we have a hard time imagining that society could be organized in any other way than this we've been taught to fear the absence of central control in our lives we are told that there are others in the world who mean us harm and that the only way to protect our lives and property is to subject ourselves to collective authority. These others become defined as enemies, both foreign and domestic. All that we need to do is turn our lives, property, decision-making over to our leaders who will protect us. Soon we find ourselves awash in fear, as threat after threat is held up to us for our consumption. Employees are told to fear their employers. Racial and religious groups are taught to distrust one another. Parents and children, men and women, straights and gays, smokers and non-smokers, manufacturers and consumers, doctors and patients, immigrants and native-born, on and on and on go the pairings by which the state aggrandizes its power through its creation of fear. Just how easily the state can mobilize and exploit fear into an acceptance of increased governmental power can be seen in post 9-11 America. With the government providing us with the fear of terrorists and we responding by a willingness to submit just about everything to state authority. Randolph Bourne got to the essence of this when he declared that war is the health of the state. Business corporations have been major institutional contributors to the political structuring of society the bulk of government regulation of the marketplace has come from within the business community itself. The highly energized pace of free competition is disturbing to to firms that lack either the resiliency or the will to respond to it. As a consequence, businesses have been the architects of various governmental programs that restrict entry, control trade practices, stabilize prices, establish employment and, and product standards, subsidized research and development, and a host of other interventions designed, in the words of one commentator, quote, to give business the comfortable feeling that their position is secure, end of quote. The unrestrained nature of the free market has thus been converted into a Byzantine system. But there's been a rapidly growing failure of expectations from the role of government in our society. We've been taught to look to the state for social and economic order, but the record reveals consistent patterns of calculated chaos. 20th century state-conducted wars and genocides killed some 200 million people. State systems of economic planning have produced starvation, impoverishment, and additional deaths, along with shortages of goods and services, unemployment, inflation, and depressions. Meanwhile, the promises of individual liberty being protected by the state have been negated by expanded police states, concentration camps and gulags, death squads, torture, censorship, surveillance of the lives of people, and widespread forms of police brutality. America now leads the world in the number of people held in prisons, most having been convicted of victimless crimes. What do we mean by a victimless crime? A crime lacking any trespass to the property of others. At least one major American corporation makes its fleet of jet planes available to the United States to fly people to other countries for more exotic forms of torture. The expectation that the state would protect private property has builded in the face of the growing burden of taxation, government regulation of our homes, businesses, and land usage, and the powers of eminent domain. Among the more telling symptoms of the state's disdain for the well-being of humans and the state's insistence upon, or rather are the state's insistence upon farming activities and water availability being curtailed in order to protect a state-certified endangered species. Worse yet has been the state's preoccupation with developing super weapons, such as the neutron bomb weapons that only kill people while leaving institutional resources such as buildings, bridges, airports, factories, and so forth intact. The Russian government re- recently announced that it had created a super bomb. Not only is it four times more powerful than the Americans best, but provides the same benefits of destroying only living beings. Quote, all that is alive merely evaporates, end of quote the Russian government boasted. A Russian official announced that, quote, this weapon does not contaminate the environment, end of quote. Certainly a virtue, certain to garner support from all politically correct thinkers, including our latest Nobel Peace Prize winner, who I I, I still don't know whether he won it for, uh, for his stuff on global warming, or for having invented the internet, or, for the campaign that uh, he and his wife had engaged in back in the '70s, uh, wanted to go after rock music because if you played it backwards, you got uh, devilish uh, lyrics and so forth i 've never figured out how to play a record backwards anymore used to be able to do that. These are the kind of loonies that uh, attract attention in our world today instead of us kind of loonies right. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, American scientists, not desiring of suffering the indignity of falling behind the Russians in the capacity for inflicting massive deaths upon people, are at work on an even more, even more powerful bomb. Such priorities tell us a great deal about the state and its institutional attitudes about humanity. Now, I imagine that if you think about it in your own profession, you can see interesting parallels. Like any prudent owner, the state has made an assessment of all of its assets and informed us that the bottom has fallen out of the market for human beings. For a number of reasons, the top-down model of social order now finds itself in retreat. This is the good news part. Faith in pyramidally structured systems is in the process of being demolished by a more sophisticated understanding of the dynamics of complexity. Technology has generated its own science in the study of chaos. A primary lesson in this emerging field of inquiry is that complex systems such as society are too varied in terms of their structure and origins, subject to too many unseen influences, to be capable of generating predictable outcomes other than in the very short run. As computer-generated fractals are making us aware what our limited vision causes us to see as disordered turbulence contains hidden regularities. I'd like to show you an example of this. Well, let me put it up here and see if we can put it that way. Uh, okay, I think this is right Yeah. <coughs> there you go. Anyone recognize that? Is it part of the night sky? Hmm. Is it part of the sky? Part of the night sky. Hmm. Maybe paint. painting. One of, one of Jackson Pollock's earlier attempts, perhaps. Yeah. Hey, that's good. Drop cloth. Yeah when I offered this to one group, they suggested bird droppings as well, you know, on your newly washed car. I think it's your socks. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Anyone know what that is? Well, well, let's try, let's try this one. Ah, I'm going the wrong way here. Yeah. United States. Anyone recognize that? It's a no. of caused by yeah, that's what it is? Yeah. Well, let's see if it goes. You sure of that? Why why didn't why didn't you see that here? I can't hear you. Why didn't you see that here? (coughs) Because (coughs) take a look at this portion up here, and you will discover it right here. Right. So what changed? Perspective. Perspective. Perspective and what else? What else? What else? Well, okay. What? Yeah. What else? See, so we look. We we look at the world and we see it functioning in chaos, disorder, turbulence, and all of that. Much, much as we, much as most of you probably saw in the first slide, right? What a mess! Just a lot of disordered, chaotic, turbulent, something or other. And yet, when I put the other picture up, which of which the first one was simply a subset of the larger one, you all recognized it. Meaning what? Our mind acted on Well, you saw you saw something, you saw something in the second one that was familiar enough to provide a pattern of order to it, wasn't it? The second one became orderly because you became aware of its conformity with something else that you another f- pattern you're already f- familiar with. This is, what, this is what chaos theory is helping us learn, to discover patterns of order in things that we, heretofore, not, not seeing the, the base for the order, just assumed to be utter chaos and disruption and destruction. Okay? Anyway, these experiences are helping us understand that what we see as disorder may be nothing more than an order whose patterns we've not yet identified. The words of Terry Pratchett, quote, chaos is found in greatest abundance whenever order is being sought. Chaos always defeats order because it is better organized. If <laughs> you think that through, it's, it's not just, it, it sounds funny, it sounds cute, but it's more, it's more than that. That the patterns of regularity that we find in nature we we have not identified are far better organized, and the simple ones that we think we see, particularly when those simple ones come from someone in authority who's telling us that this is the way the world really works. The Study of chaos is beginning to reveal the integrated complexity, not only of human society, but of the entire universe, and the processes by which such complexity generate order. While complex systems are determined, their course of conduct remains unavoidably unpredictable the seeming dilemma leads advocates of the pyramidal model to assume that unpredictability can be overcome by the acquisition of more information such thinking is reflected in the oft-heard mantra recited by true believers in pyramidism following a major catastrophe we will find out what went wrong and fix it so that it doesn't happen again this is the new religion, it's not the new religion it's one that's been around for a long time we're in a, those of us who are in authority know what's going on, we can figure it out if something goes wrong we'll find out what that is fix it and it'll never happen again Albert Einstein had an interesting observation on that point in terms of the acquisition of more information when he said as the circle of light increases so does the circumference of darkness around it okay While one can speak intelligently of probabilities where the law of large numbers operates, the ability to make specific predictions depends upon an awareness of all the factors (coughs) that bear upon the event in question. To accurately reflect requires a, quote, sensitive dependence (coughs) upon initial conditions, end of quote. That is, to know in advance the identity and degrees of influence of every factor operating upon a system. Want to test that out, try predicting specifically the course of your life for the next week. You won't be able to do it. Who's going to call you? What kind of good and bad uh, events are going to happen in your life? You you won't be able to do it. Um, And this information is impossible to amass really for a number of reasons. One, the logistical problem of, of marshalling all relevant factors. Just collecting them, just to know you know, everything that's working upon any particular system. Two overcoming the information loss that's inherent in differences between reality and the words, which are but abstractions, that we use to describe reality. What we what we are doing when we're describing reality is something different from reality itself. We call something a tree, whatever it is we're calling a tree doesn't know that it's a tree, it's just out there treeing, doing its particular this particular thing. Third is the subjective nature of our understanding. We translate our world by reference to our individual mental constructs drawn from our limited and unique prior experiences. Fourth is the role played by Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which informs us that our act of observing something affects what it is we are seeing. And you want to boil some water on the stove and you want to find out what temperature it is, you put a thermometer in to measure the temperature. The lower temperature thermometer affects the temperature of the water. Other examples that are probably socially far more uh, relevant. Five, in an age of the internet, cell phones, iPods, iPhones, fax machines, etc., the speed with which information is transmitted throughout the world is often too spontaneous and interconnected for the cumbersome, bureaucratic, conservative, secretive, and reactive nature of institutions to make responses to changes. As we saw in the government's failed expectations, or failed responses, I should say, uh, to flooding in New Orleans, the information upon which the state relies is often outdated by the time it gets around to taking action. The more informal and unstructured processes of the market, however, uh, allowed for very quick responses from individuals and business firms. There are adverse consequences to the institutionalizing practices that extend not only to, the, to an interference with the powerful actions of individuals, but may bring about a collapse of civilizations themselves. A number of historians of it have informed us of how institutional structuring and the standardization of productive practices reduce the resiliency of societies to make creative responses in a world of ever-changing conditions. A clearer understanding of both history and the orderly patterns hidden within complex systems may help us to appreciate that the only real security any of us can enjoy is to be a changing person in a constantly changing world. Though I regard myself as an agnostic in matters religious, I am nonetheless of the view that there is a life force within nature whose energies foster conditions that are conducive to life. One example of this is to be found in the dysfunctional nature of size. Within social organizations, as well as biological systems, there's an allometric principle at work to maintain an appropriateness of size. My research in the field of government regulation of business business convinces me that no corporate enterprise, regardless of its intentions, could long sustain itself uh, were it to fail to remain responsive to the demands of the marketplace. Our modern corporate state economic system has been a product not of the dynamics of a free market, but of an incestuous and symbiotic relationship between business firms and the state. For reasons I really don't have the time to detail here, although I did so in, in, in another book that, that I wrote that was actually published in this town. I was surprised on the Cherry Hill it's Associated University Presses. Um, Larger organizations enjoy a concentrated interest in promoting their policies within the halls of government, where the state can enforce such policies upon all. The state can overcome the weaknesses of a voluntary cartel by providing coercive enforcement. Such concentrations of power are what underlie the standardization practices and uniformities that combine to weaken, if not destroy, civilizations. In his wonderful book, The Breakdown of Nations, Leopold Korr developed what he called the size theory of social misery, contending that whenever something is wrong, something is too big, whether what we are considering is a powerful nation state or a cancer cell. Perhaps the massive, over-specialized institutions will, like the dinosaurs before them, prove unable to adapt to decentralizing trends thus making way for the smaller, more resilient counterparts to the mammals who were able to prosper. The collapse of the Soviet Union and the emergence of secessionist separatist movements provide additional evidence of the destabilizing nature associated with size. Whatever may be the source of the changes, our civilization is in a state of major transformation. Such changes go far beyond those familiar marginal considerations that involve alterations that uh, uh, that convert uh, radio into television, for example, or the horse and buggy into the automobile. The changes that that are upon us right now are far more significant than that. Our social world is undergoing a fundamental metamorphosis of such dimensions that has led at least one observer to suggest that its implications might be greater than those of the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the Scientific Revolution, and the Industrial Revolution combined. Whether such prognostications hold up is yet to be determined, of course, and chaos theory tells us something about the inability to predict the future. But the far-reaching nature of the changes cannot be denied. A world is becoming increasingly decentralized and organized along horizontal lines, rather than the vertically structured systems that have defined the state. The Internet is the most dramatic and well-known example of this. Decentralizing the communication of information not only through emails, but through some 22 million blog sites in the world, providing the opportunity for horizontal two-way communication among people through some 1 billion private computers. These are older figures, I haven't, uh, about a year or so old. Information is very liberating. And for the first time in human history, each one of us Enjoys the technological capacity to communicate bilaterally and and directed only by us with every human being on the planet. Provided only two things. They all have computers and secondly, they choose to communicate with us. The internet is helping to dissolve ancient political boundaries in favor of philosophic, economic, religious entertainment, lifestyle, or other cyber communities. We are choosing our communities rather than having them imposed upon us by political fiat. The established news media, long grounded in the vertically structured principle of we'll tell you what we want you to know, finds itself aggressively challenged by technologies that allow anyone not only to become a news source, but to be able to identify and even force corrections to erroneously reported news stories. Individuals with their own video and cell phone cameras provide pictorial coverage of catastrophes and other events that centralized news sources do not. Such cameras have also spawned the widespread growth of documentary filmmaking, an activity one of our daughters is engaged in. The lies, deceptions, and corruption that arise within various institutions, particularly the state, are being disclosed not so much by government officials or the so-called mainstream media as by independent journalists, internet reporters, and internet websites. It is little wonder that the one you worship so much, Hillary Clinton, proposed a few years ago uh, the creation of a gatekeeper to control what can be put out on the internet. Nor is it surprising that a former advisor to President Bush on cybersecurity has recently called for government regulation and a closed internet, as well as the use of biometric IDs to identify who is sending online messages. The purpose of all this, he added, would be, quote, to create trust in cyberspace, kind of along the lines of, I'm from the government, I'm here to help meaning, no doubt, that the political establishment could trust the internet and see it as a threat to its authority. (coughs) Some major newspapers, confronting a diminished base of subscribers and the advertisers who depend upon that base, have turned to the internet reporting of news themselves. Websites and so-called niche publications provide localized news stories of topics of personal interest to individual readers. In turn, the readers become active two-way participants in both reporting and generating stories, a process that has led to increased readership and advertising. Business firms long ago discovered the profitability, increased productivity, and other advantages of smallness and decentralized managerial practices. I spent a good deal of my time in law practice uh, beginning in the uh, 1960s helping business clients establish such decentralized managerial systems in which increased decision making is put into the hands of employees. Interestingly, in ways that greatly increase the profitability of the company. At the same time, manufacturing is increasingly being done in smaller, more resilient firms with massive specialized factories becoming part of a growing rust belt in many industrialized cities. Many business entrepreneurs have discovered the wider advantages of the smallest, beautiful perspective, foregoing the allures of corporate bigness in favor of retaining ownership and control over their smaller enterprises that allow them to uh, pursue a wider range of values than just monetary profits. Such people, one of whom is the father-in-law of one of my daughters, are discovering the practical advantages of living within the decentralized world of privately owned property. Some environmental groups have found the purchase of forests, wildlife lands, so-called conservation easements, and other such property interests a more practical and less conflict-ridden way of preserving natural resources than the, than the use of coercive governmental restrictions that invade property owners' lands and generate conflict. Government schools are being effectively challenged by private schools and homeschooling practices. Alternative religions and are providing people with additional means of satisfying their spiritual needs. In matters of health care, alternative methodologies are appealing to men and women who insist on working more closely with physicians and others in order to have more control over their health. I can relate here a personal experience that, that illustrates my point. When we lost our first grandson to an umbilical cord accident in the 39th week of pregnancy a couple years ago, One of his aunts, one of our daughters, immediately did an internet search and made contact with Dr. Jason Collins and his pregnancy institute in Slidell, Louisiana. Dr. Collins' method of identifying and saving at-risk babies is about as decentralized as it gets, engaging his patient, the mother, in the process. Beginning at the 28th week, the mother uses a hospital-grade fetal monitor for, for 30 minutes Uh, every night until delivery. The baby's heart rate recordings are transmitted via the internet to the uh, pregnancy institute where Dr. Collins observes the heart rate and is thus able to identify umbilical cord compression patterns. If the evidence shows that the fetus is compromised, early delivery is considered. This is a a very good example, I think, of the decentralization can actually save lives authors need no longer rely on large publishing houses as publishing on demand has become a viable alternative any of you have a book to get published very simple very very simple to get it done today you may have to market it yourself but it's still a very simple thing to do the site Myspace.com is creating opportunities for musicians to circumvent established record companies and put their work online. Low price cameras and digital printers have opened the photography profession to more people. Satellite radio and television new or telev- sorry, and te- television now vigorously compete compete with government created broadcasting monopolists, stock and commodity firms who control Uh, their own purchases through computers rather than having to rely on brokerage houses. In recent decades, investment practices have evolved to provide individuals with more independent decision making than had existed in more traditional brokerage house practices. For instance, the emergence of mutual funds was followed by online discount uh, brokerages and later by exchange traded funds. These and other changes have led to decentralization in the investment practice. The banking industry, perhaps the most institutionalized sector in private business, has engaged in limited experimentation with micro-lending, a system designed to provide small loans to impoverished people who have little or no material collateral. The collateral upon which lenders rely is found in the promises of a handful of the borrowers, fellow villagers, to repay the loan. This, by the way, was a system that was created, dreamed up back in the 19th century by one of the founders of libertarian thinking, Lysander Spooner. Some of you may be familiar with Spooner. People are actually doing that today. One expression of a politically unrestrained marketplace, eBay, provides a means for people to buy and sell virtually anything through internet transactions with total strangers trading over great geographic distances. Furthermore, PayPal is available as an alternative method for the payment of goods and services in a horizontally networked world. At the same time, some 16 privately operating regional currencies have appeared in Germany as an alternative to the state-created euro, with 60% of the earnings derived from one such currency going to local charities. Likewise, a number of cities, this is really, this I find really intriguing, a number of cities and regions in Europe have taken to abolishing all traffic signs, leaving traffic decisions to be made by the interplay of motorists. One advocate of such change has said that, quote, the many rules strip us of the most important thing, the ability to be considerate. We're losing our capacity for socially responsible behavior. End of quote. This new policy has actually also led to a dramatic reduction in traffic accidents in these communities. The Internet Encyclopedia, Wikipedia, is a continually updated system that allows visitors to edit subject matter content, a system that has been emulated by dig.com for the reporting of news stories. Craigslist is an online service through which millions of people buy and sell items seek employment or housing, develop social relationships, or pursue other interests. Members themselves provide discipline to this website by a system of flagging. On a more frivolous level, flash mobs, which I find kind of interesting. Flash mobs make use of cell phones and the internet to organize strangers to participate in some pointless act and then disband. Show up in the center of town and, you know, Jump around, do something silly, sing a song, and then go home. One can only imagine the spontaneity, uh, the spontaneous creative uses to which such methods might one day be made. Perhaps no phenomenon better exemplifies the emerging decentralization of life than the success of J. K. Rowling's Harry Potter. I think. Any of you heard of Harry Potter books? <laughs> exactly. Uh, After the publisher initially put a few hundred of these books on the market without much publicity at all, they became popular with children whose playground discussions of the books snowballed into a marketplace demand that has earned the author tens of millions of dollars. Kids talking to other kids and say, have you read the Harry Potter book? Well, what's that? And they tell them something about it. Mom, I want a Harry Potter book. So forth. when the last one came out, um, one of our daughters was uh, visiting us <coughs> there in Burbank, <coughs> and she had ordered one of these Harry Potter books. It was to be delivered by the um, post office, I guess it was, uh, the, on the Saturday that they were going to be made public. And so I happened to catch the mail carrier who was delivering these, and I said, just out of curiosity, how many of these books have you had to special, sort of special deliver today? And he said, I think it was 55, just on his route. And he said, it's kind of strange, though, there were only three on your street. (laughs) The dispersal of human action manifests itself in still other areas. For decades, men and women have voiced a continuing decline of confidence in politics and the political process. With the emergence of websites and blog sites, however, many have begun to discover countervailing influences to the democracy of smoke-filled rooms media control, political campaigns, and staged debates between establishment-certified candidates. Those of you who I've seen uh, here today wearing Ron Paul uh, buttons, and I see a few of them in the room, can take comfort in knowing that this is an Internet-generated phenomenon. The institutional order hates it and will do everything they can uh, to preclude it. I caution you to heed the words of of Gandhi, who once said, you know, first they ignore you, then they ridicule you, then they fight you, then you win. So keep your eye on some of that. Political parties find themselves having to contend with questioning that concern ordinary people rather than just the leaders of various political action collectives who presume to speak for others than themselves. but With the decentralization of human action, politics has become a less relevant means for many people to accomplish ends of the, that they value. Part of the explanation for this f- uh, decline in the importance of politics is found in the fact that political systems have historically defined themselves geographically. While the world is becoming more holistic and beyond the limitations of territory, I don't know how many of you play around on the internet other than sending emails to friends, but you know the the kinds of communities that are set up have really no geographical connection, no geographical boundary. I, I get uh, in you know, re- responses to some of my writings from people in Norway. I got one from a guy uh, last week in Holland. Uh, you know all kinds of different parts of the world, Australia. Um, And this becomes kind of the new community. It's not simply a geographic definition. Men and women are discovering in informal and voluntary methods of association, more effective means of bringing out social change than those that rely on sluggish, corrupt, and coercive political machinations. While members of the political establishment chastise as apathetic those who withdraw from state-centered undertakings, the reality is that increasing numbers of men and women are redirecting their energies with an advanced enthusiasm to pursuits over which they have greater personal control. This redistribution of authority is both liberating and empowering, a continuing process that is generating interest in exponential terms in less formal systems of social behavior. One of the more interesting phenomena is the practice in some communities and other groups of reaching common objectives through consensus. A word that we badly misuse. Consensus is a system where everyone must agree with a proposal before it is undertaken. Casper, California, an unrestricted, I'm sorry, an unincorporated town of some 2,000 people occupying about 12 square miles of territory is one such community in which decisions are made through a process of deliberating until we can find a way that satisfies all end of quote Jane and I went up to this town uh, a year or two ago sat down in one of their sessions it's fascinating just really fascinating they're trying to make some minor decision uh, that had no political import to it at all but it had to do with dealing with some noxious weed that was in the community and how should we go about doing this and some of the people said well let's Bring in the county weed control authority or something like that. One woman said, "No, I don't want to bring the government in on any of this stuff." You know, there have been. A <laughs> that's why we're here. You know, they're kind of a pain in the neck. So the other people didn't argue with everybody. Said, "Well, what would satisfy you? What, how would how could we do this without bringing in the government and so Finally, they came up with a solution that satisfied her. This is what we mean by by consensus. It's not the conflict-ridden 51 to 49 percent stuff that we've taken for I have a mandate, 22% of the eligible voters voted for me. And I won out over the guy who only got 20%. I have a mandate, the public demands my policies. As with most Amish communities, Casper confirms the benefits that can derive from smaller face-to-face associations. This consensus-seeking process exists also in such places as Somalia, where consensus decisions are insisted upon not only as a way of achieving harmony within a community but to make certain critical opinions are heard so as to have more information available for reaching a more sound decision. An interest, very interesting thing going on there. The United Nations has been pouring billions of dollars into Somalia to try to reestablish the government that collapsed in 1991. In the areas outside Mogadishu, um, people have nothing to do with it. They, they want nothing to do with government. They remember the British. They remember all the colonial powers that had that had come down there. And they fall back upon their systems of customary law. And here's the UN in there. and We're going to send more troops in there. We've got to impose and instill uh, a politically-based system. But here's how decision-making gets carried out in Somalia. Well, Decision-making in the assembly involves no casting of votes. Rather, the assembly members keep on talking until a consensus is reached. That is why the meeting can last a long time, sometimes several months. The reason why the assembly operates by consensus is easy to understand. It prevents the assembly from taking decisions that would infringe on anyone's freedom and property rights. On a grimmer note, the processes of decentralization have manifested themselves in destructive activity as well. We've learned in recent decades that nation states no longer enjoy monopolies in their conduct of war. Guerrilla tactics, suicide attacks, and localized insurgencies have turned war itself into a decentralized undertaking. Powerful state military forces armed with bombers, missiles, tanks, naval vessels, and tens of thousands of soldiers with sophisticated weapons and computerized tools are proving to be no match for informal, decentralized, horizontally-networked groups that covertly attack and defeat them. Herein lies a lesson we ought to have learned from H.G. Wells' classic War of the Worlds. I don't know if any of you read that novel or even saw the movie. Um, Where we try to use all these sophisticated weapons to destroy these invaders, and they were eventually brought down by bacteria, the smallest of creatures that God in his wisdom had seen fit to put upon the earth. Uh, We're relearning that lesson. Um, These militia and military groups operate autonomously, each being free to quickly adapt to immediate circumstances without having to resort to direction from a centralized leadership. Physically superior state forces with hundreds of billions of dollars of support, including the use of massive aerial bombing, the most literal example a vertically directed power you can imagine, have been resisted and defeated by localized insurgency groups. The French learned this in Indochina and Algeria, Soviet Union learned it in Afghanistan, The United States learned it in Vietnam and is now learning it again in Iraq, and Israel learned it in Lebanon. What makes so-called terrorist groups so difficult to identify and deal with is their informal, dispersed, non-hierarchical forms of organization. This reflects the attitude I heard of one uh, of the black civil rights uh, leaders back in the 1960s who they were talking about you know, who, was the, who was the real leader of all of this, said there really is no leader. Just who have, have, happens to show up that particular day. I mean, the leadership was so dispersed that one person's removal didn't, uh, didn't destroy it. Such is the emerging model in which liberty and variability will flourish in a decentralized world. Law enforcement and anti-terrorist officials in various parts of the world have noted the emerging phenomenon of informally organized mini-groups, sometimes consisting of only two or three persons, made up of people who become angry and react violently. Such groups which have been labeled bogs, meaning bunch of guys, uh, spontaneously appear and disappear. Their lack of formal leadership or hierarchical organization makes it difficult to identify such persons. At the same time, urban gangs have effectively displaced governmental police in controlling parts of many inner cities as well as prisons. The implications of such decentralized trends have not been lost on the political and economic establishment. The so-called war on terror appears to be a desperate effort by those with a vested interest in the vertically structured status quo, for example, the state and major state-connected corporations, to resist the movement toward horizontally networked systems. This war, to which its promoters have given a prognosis of permanency, could more accurately be termed a war for the preservation of the old order. If the pyramid is collapsing into horizontal networks, as I believe it is, It is supposed that expanded police and regulatory powers, increased surveillance and torture, RFID chips and GPS systems that contract the movement of individuals, restricted due process and habeas corpus rights and other coercive means might reinforce its crumbling foundations and reverse the decline. But beyond all these pragmatic considerations is to be found another factor that underlies much of the decentralizing dynamics occurring elsewhere in society. Institutionalized decision-making tends to be quite dehumanizing and at war with the autonomous, spontaneous, and spiritual nature of what it means to be a human being. Institutionalized healthcare, particularly when managed by the state, has tended to deal with people in a very mechanistic fashion. Medical technologies now permit life to be both engineered and extended in ways that far exceed the forms imagined by Mary Shelley and Aldous Huxley. As we come to regard ourselves as extensions of machines, as the substance of our medical care is determined less by the judgments of a personal physician and more by faceless insurance company clerks, as politicians, judges, and governmental bureaucracies insist upon their authority to define when life both begins and ends. As the control over one's life increasingly slips away, there is a gnawing sense among many people that the non-material qualities that give life its deeper spiritual meaning have become immaterial in an institutionalized world. I shall end my remarks on the point at which I began, namely, the quality of our lives, both individually and socially, will be determined by how we answer the question, do we own ourselves? This inquiry, and not our adherence to political ideologies or religious doctrines, will determine both the spiritual depth of our commitment to life processes, as well as our determination that our social systems serve individual rather than institutional purposes. Thank you.